Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. So when you ask the question, what is death? There are really three contemporary answers. One answer is, the body dies, and that is all she wrote. That's the end of everything. That's it. The other answer is that there is something inside the body that goes to the great beyond. And then there's kind of a third answer, which I'll get to in a minute. So that first answer, the body dies, that's all she wrote, that's really predicated on an idea called materialism. So it's this idea that there cannot be anything that you can't see through a microscope or a telescope or with the unaided eye, that the only things that can possibly exist are things that scientists can observe in a laboratory. If a scientist can't observe it, then it de facto cannot exist. It would be utterly impossible for an unobservable object to exist. This is not a scientific viewpoint. This is actually a religious viewpoint. It's a faith that people have that nothing but the observable could possibly exist. Science is completely silent on this subject because the whole point of science is to talk about what's observable. If there's non-observable stuff, that's beyond the domain of science. And so any real scientist, any philosopher of science, would certainly say science has no comment on that. Science is just about experimentation. And if there's something you can't experiment on, well, that's not something you can do science with. So this kind of faith perspective of materialism would say that the human person is the body. That's it. The human person is, someone famously said, about $5 worth of chemicals and some water. That's what a human is. And so everything that happens within the body is really a result of those chemical interactions taking place. So I might think that I love my spouse or my children. I might think that a certain song makes me happy. I might think that I love Japanese food and detest pickled pig's feet. But really, those are not feelings that I actually have. I have this sort of illusion of having a feeling, but really that's just these sort of chemicals interacting within my body. And I might sort of attribute my will to that or my experiences, but really to attribute those things to me is kind of like attributing, if you mix up some baking soda and some vinegar inside a paper mache volcano, it might kind of look like the volcano is producing lava, but it's really just a necessary chemical interaction. It's just what happens when baking soda meets vinegar. So when certain chemicals, certain proteins interact with other proteins, other chemicals inside me, things just happen. And I might sort of tell myself a story about why they're happening, but really they were going to happen no matter what, if there was an interaction between those chemicals. So this is a completely deterministic worldview. There is no real joy, there is no real sadness, there is no real love. All those things are just sort of illusions. Um, even life itself is, in a sense, an illusion, because it's just chemicals bouncing off each other. So if everything is really just this chemistry within the body, when those chemical interactions stop, then the body dies and the human person is no more. Death is the death of the body. And 
when that body dies, then it can be dangerous. It can be something that could rot and spread disease. Or that body could be maybe helpful. It could be a form of compost. So you can maybe uh, use it to fertilize a tree, and then a tree grows. But one way or the other, that is, that's the whole of death. The chemical interactions stop, the person dies, and that's that. This other definition of death is that there is something inside each body called a soul. And a soul is kind of a mystical, sacred part of the person, or maybe even part of the universe or part of God, and it um, exits the body on death. So the body is kind of like um, a husk. So if you're if you pick an, an ear of wheat, there is this germ of wheat inside that you can mash up and make bread out of and sustain life. But then there's this kind of useless hard part around the grain of wheat. So the body is kind of the useless hard part around the essential part of the person, which is the soul. And upon death, death is really that soul leaving the body to go to its true home. In some systems of thought, that true home might be re-integrating kind of into some sort of oversoul or re-merging into God or re-becoming kind of a, an eternal part of the universe. And in other systems of thought, that eternal soul is given a harp and a pair of wings and sits on a cloud forever. But in any case, it is the sort of immortal part of the self. It is this part of the self that cannot die, the part of the self that is mystical and purely other. It is spiritual, it is incomprehensible, inscrutable. It is the immortal. And even though this term gets used by some Christian groups, it's really kind of a problematic term because the idea is that you have God who is infinite and eternal, but then you also have all these souls that are also somehow eternal and immortal. They're godlike in themselves. And from the Christian perspective, we are just creatures of God. We are the beloved of God. We are the creatures that God created for a perfect, loving relationship with himself. But we are far from little gods. We are not in any sense immortal. So for Platonism and for Gnosticism, there's this sense that there are these two different types of things in the universe. There are things that are mortal and things that are immortal. And when you mix them, they stay completely separate, like oil and water. And so the body is the mortal part of ourselves, the water part. The soul is the immortal part of ourselves, the oil part. And when you divide the two, really the mortal part well, is going to go away anyway. So who ultimately needs it? It doesn't actually matter. It's just kind of trash. Whereas the soul is the immortal part of you that goes back to the immortal part of the universe. And that's deeply problematic from the perspective of Christianity, because everything for us is wholly contingent upon the goodness and the mercy and the generosity and the love of God. When this gets commingled with Christianity, it's also problematic for the reason that it becomes an alternative definition of what a person is. From this perspective, the person really is just the soul, and the body doesn't matter. And that's never what Christianity has taught. So when this does get commingled with a Christian perspective, you'll hear people say, you shouldn't be sad at a funeral. They're in a better place now. Death was the best thing that ever happened to them. You should just have a celebration of life and talk about how much they love fishing or whatever. The body does not matter. 
And so this is a, a very different perspective than Christians historically have held. So the third perspective I thought I might talk a bit about is really the early church perspective, and it's really the perspective of Christianity now. And from this perspective, a person is made up of two parts. There is the body, which is your skin, your bones, the hair in your ears, your toenails, all that. And there is the soul. But what Christianity means by soul is something different than what Gnosticism or kind of New Age thinking or whatever means by the soul. The soul for Christianity is not this like mystical, inscrutable, eternal object. Oh, what mysteries does it hold? Um, Instead, the soul is just the kind of stuff that makes you, you. It is the life given to the body. So it's the life within you. It's the quality of being alive. And it's also your internal experiences. So it is your thoughts. It is your emotions. It is your sensory perception. So the love you feel is something that's going on in the soul. The, the thoughts you're thinking are, are things that are going on in the soul. Mind is kind of a reduction of the concept of soul. Self is kind of a reduction of the concept of soul. But all these things are present within the Christian idea of the soul. So on the one hand, you are skin and bones and hair and so forth. And on the other hand, you are thoughts and feelings and you feel angry sometimes, you get happy other times, you feel sick sometimes, you know that two plus two equals four, you remember that time when you were a kid and you lost your trike, you have life, you have thought, you have emotion, you have perception, and you have will. And these are all parts of the soul. And the Christian definition of a person is conjoined body and soul. That's what personhood is. You have your physical body, and you have your thoughts, your life, your will, and you are one. So your hand is not discreet from you, your brain is not discreet from you, your thoughts are not discreet from you, your emotions are not discreet from you. It's just you. And death is tearing apart these two inextricably linked components of your personhood. It is really canceling out personhood because you can't be a person without body and soul. So if you are just a body with no thoughts, no emotions, no will, no life itself, then that's not personhood. You're just a corpse. If you are somehow a disembodied consciousness or a disembodied life, That's also not personhood. That's just some creepy ghost. And death is the tearing of the personhood asunder. But the Christian understanding of death is that it is not natural. Death, says St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, is actually the enemy of God. The last enemy to be destroyed by God is death. So death was ushered into the world at the fall, not as a punishment for humanity, but simply as what happens when you rebel against the source of life. So when you reject the source of life himself, all that's left is non-existence. All that's left is death. Death is ushered into the creation, and it transforms the creation, reigning over the creation until the end of time. But rather than being content with the situation, God is horrified at this situation, because death is really the creation turning away from God and towards nothingness, away from the source of all life, the source of all fulfillment and love, and towards non-existence. And so God, in a sense, rails against death. And we, too, have this horror of death. All of us are fleeing death, are fighting death. We may not have a paralyzing fear of death, on the one hand, 
But on the other, if we are asked to do something that involves death, it's very unlikely that we will do it. Maybe you can make a great sacrifice for someone you love or, or something that you care about uh, and die for the sake of that cause or that person. But it's rare that someone says, hey, I'll give you $6 if you die right now. Or, you know, I'll give you this uh, phenomenal birthday cake, uh, but it's going to kill you. We would say thanks, but no thanks, because death is one of the most horrific things that we can imagine. This tearing asunder of our body and our soul, that is unnatural. It's wrong. It should not be that way. And so we run from that. Given the basic human opposition to death, it's funny to think about these two theories of kind of materialism and Gnosticism, because if we're just chemicals bouncing around in chemical interactions, then who really cares if we exist or we don't exist? I mean, do we even is there even really an I that exists anyway, if I'm just like a bunch of carbon or whatever? And then if we are these souls imprisoned in these corporeal prisons, these bodies who are really meant to be free, then also why are we trying to avoid death? Because being free, being home, being liberated from the prison of the body, that's much better than being in the prison of the body, presumably. And yet most people don't act this way. We do whatever we can to stave off death for as long as we can. But for Christians, that's not the end of the story. Because we believe in the resurrection of the body. Not just the resurrection of Christ. We believe that that is his resurrection is the prototype of our own resurrection. We believe that our body will actually be put back together with our soul at the end of time. And that as a full human person, not as a disembodied soul, not as a lifeless dead body, but as a full regular human person who is body and soul together, we will stand face to face with Christ. And this is not something that only happens to good people or only happens to Christians. This we believe happens to everybody. This happens to Mother Teresa, this happens to Hitler, this happens to everybody in between. So the worst of the worst, the best of the best, everyone is put back together, body and soul. Death is defeated. Death is destroyed. We are all going to be alive again as people, as body and soul together. St. Justin Martyr, writing in the second century, says explicitly, this is for the just and the unjust. Everyone will be raised at the final judgment. There are some aspects of theology that are really speculative theology. It's kind of musing about how things might be, what God might be like, and they're very much optional parts of Christian belief. But for the early church, the resurrection of the body was not one of those. It was actually one of the core tenets of what Christian belief was, of what kind of made you a Christian. This is so much so that one great early church bishop, Bishop Polycarp of Smyrna, in one of his letters says to the Philippians, look, if anyone denies the resurrection of the body, body and soul being reassembled for every single person at the end of time, then that person is the firstborn of the enemy. That person is as bad as it gets. Polycarp, very loving, compassionate, mild-mannered guy, is vehement that this is a core tenet of Christian faith. Later, St. Augustine says, no doctrine of the Christian faith is so vehemently and so obstinately opposed as the doctrine of the resurrection of the flesh. And what he means by this is that even in his day, 
this Gnostic idea of the soul as necessarily this kind of immortal thing, this mysterious orb floating around inside the person that cannot die, was very dominant among the majority of philosophers. And the alternative to this was a sort of materialism that said the body just dies and that's that. Best case scenario, the soul goes down to the land of the shades and is forever living this kind of bleak, gray, boring existence. But those are really the two options. But for Augustine, if you deny the resurrection of the body, if you deny the rejoining of body and soul, this return to full personhood at the end of time, you're denying all of Christianity. St. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, says, If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink now, for tomorrow we die. This Roman proverb, he says, basically, if we're not going to be reunited in the fullness of our personhood, then, like, get what you can now. Like, live it up, because, like, there's not really that much to live for. So have that extra Arby's sandwich or whatever it is that brings you joy, because there's nothing else. But then he says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed. So if you are planting an apple tree, it doesn't mean you go to the store and you buy a full-grown, like 40-foot-high, gigantic apple tree, and you dig a huge hole down into the ground and you bury the whole tree in the hopes that a, another apple tree is going to come up. Instead, you take one little tiny apple seed and you plant it in the ground. And if you had never heard of this process before, and someone showed you an apple tree and then showed you a little tiny seed and said, here in the seed is in a sense contained the whole of that apple tree, they would say, you are crazy. What are you talking about? That tree is gigantic. It's got leaves. It's got roots. It's got apples. You're holding up a little black speck to me and saying, this is basically the same thing. That's nuts. And St. Paul is saying, it's the apple seed that gets planted in the ground, but then it's the tree that bursts forth from the earth. So it is, he continues, with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a physical body. It is raised in a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, as it was written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, 
and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So, for St. Paul, this is a core tenet of the faith. And he starts to kind of break it down, but then he breaks it down into incomprehensible mystery. I think if you read that passage and you think, oh yeah, now I get it all. Yeah, fine, not a big deal. Then you're probably not paying adequate attention because this is way above our pay grade kind of stuff. So what did the early church make of this? What did the early church think was happening when we die, both at the time of death, when the body and soul are separated from one another, and then when they are put back together? So according to the most prolific uh, theologian that we have from the early church, Irenaeus of Lyon, the souls go to an invisible place designated for them by God and sojourn there until their resurrection. So at the time of death, the soul goes to a place appointed for it by God. Afterwards, receiving bodies and rising again perfectly with their bodies, Just as the Lord himself rose, they will so come to the side of God. So, in the Gospels, when we see the resurrected Christ, we don't see a friendly ghost. We don't see a kind of disembodied spirit. Instead, he is eating fish on the beach. He is breaking bread with his disciples. He is preaching and teaching on the one hand. On the other hand, people will take a walk with him on the road to Emmaus or wherever, and they don't even recognize him. He will be standing on the beach, and they won't be conscious of who he is. Uh, Mary Magdalene will be standing right in front of him and will think that he's a gardener. He appears places. He comes into locked rooms. There are things about him that seem just as he was before the resurrection, and there are things about him which seem totally different from the way a person normally is. Is this what the spiritual body looks like? That's a matter of tremendous speculation in the early church. So for Origen, he says that the spiritual body is the kind of perfected body. And he'll also say, so if you die as an 80-year-old, are you, when you're resurrected, are you resurrected as an 80-year-old? Are you resurrected as a 30-year-old? What's the age that you would appear uh, after your resurrection? And Origen actually says, well, it's not quite that simple. The five-year-old, the 20-year-old, the 40-year-old, the 80-year-old, they're all actually the same person. Like, you're not a different person when you're five and a different person when you're 80. They're just changes that happen. Your body's in this constant state of flux. But there's this one form that goes throughout all those phases. So for Origen, the spiritual body is the form of the person. It's, it's the kind of uh, you of you, devoid of all the fluctuations. Other church fathers would say, origin is way too rationalistic. We have no idea. So maybe you're raised as a 30-year-old. Maybe, who knows what it is. For Augustine, the spiritual body was not a different kind of body. It's not like you have a sort of earth body and then a spirit body. Uh, But spiritual meant that the spiritual part of oneself, the soul part of oneself, the part of oneself that is capable of being faithful to God, of knowing God, of loving God, becomes the dominant part of the body. It takes over in the body, that the body is completely subjected to the spirit. 
for Gregory of Nyssa, there was the sense that we were our human body, but a human body free from all the consequences of sin. The death, infirmity, deformity, difference of age, all these things were not part of the body in its spiritual state, in its resurrected state. So it was human nature remaining true to itself, but ascending to this state of spiritual perfection. Most of the fathers, however, just kind of go with what's in the creed, or even those fathers who were living before the Council of Nicaea, just go with this idea that there is going to be a resurrection of the body, that the body and the soul will be put back together. What happens between death and that moment? It's kind of a question mark. We do know, and I think all the fathers would say, that God cares for us that God loves us, that God desires a depth of relationship with us, and that neither heights nor depths nor anything else, not even death, can separate us from the love of Christ, from the knowledge of Christ, from the presence of Christ, and that whatever happens to us between the hour of our death and the moment of our bodily resurrection, we are in the presence of our loving, caring Father. But we might want to say, what actually does happen when we die? What is that experience like? Where does the soul go? What is that place appointed for it by God? We really don't know because not a lot of people come back and tell us about it. But some of the the thinkers from the early church talked about kind of places of refreshment or places of rest. Some some have imagined uh, the afterlife before the resurrection as kind of like a beautiful garden in which the soul is in the presence of Christ. And if this is the case, if the soul does go to a place of peace and joy and light and being in the presence of our Lord, then that actually does kind of harmonize the way some modern Christian traditions and ancient Christian traditions talk about what happened after you die. I think maybe the nuance would be that a modern Christian tradition might say, I had someone once say to me, you know, it's right there in the Bible. Before the body hits your hits the floor, you will be there in the arms of Jesus. Not in the Bible, by the way. Um, I didn't contradict him. He was dying. He had a strong faith. I thought that was beautiful. Um, but the way a modern Christian tradition uh, might articulate it is that basically um, you die, your body is kind of unneeded anymore. I go ahead and throw it in the fire, nourish the flowers with it, you know, do whatever. It doesn't matter because your soul is in heaven. And I think the early church would have said, um, for folks who aren't the great saints or who aren't great martyrs, um, I think the early church would have said something more like, your soul departs the body and both body and soul are waiting for the time in which your personhood is restored, waiting for the bodily resurrection. But the soul may be in a place of peace and light and joy. The soul may very much be in the arms of Christ. The soul very much may be in the presence of the angels, but that is not the fullness of heaven, nor is that the fullness of you. That's not the fullness of your personhood. And the soul and the body are actually waiting for the day that you come back together as a person in the general resurrection. For the early church, The beginning of all this process of transformation happens at baptism for Christians. So at baptism, we receive what Paul calls a down payment of the Holy Spirit, this kind of first taste of the Holy Spirit, this first experience of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of which we receive on the other side of the tomb. So we receive this first 
experience of the Holy Spirit in our baptism. We grow in that relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, over the course of our lives. We are resurrected in soul and body, and we are brought to the completion of what we were meant to be, which is the image and likeness of God. Our likeness unto God begins to be restored to us in our baptism, and it is the process is completed on the other side of the grave. Completed is kind of a tricky word because for a lot of the fathers, and even for the Episcopal Church and our prayers for the dead and our right one prayers, there is the sense that it is never a completed process. Instead, we kind of go from glory to glory uh, in eternity. That eternity is not static, but is a t- continual growth in God, a continual development in God. It is knowing God more and more, experiencing God more and more, in such a way that when one is face to face with God, with a, with the source of all joy and peace and love and goodness, one will think, okay, this is as good as it can possibly get. This is it. I have made it. This is perfection. Until the next second comes along and you're like, no, 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 this is as good as it can possibly get. And then the next second comes along and you're like, no, no, absolutely, this is as good as it can possibly get. And that happens eternally as one grows closer and closer to God, more and more into the fullness of the presence of God. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. This is how the creed ends and this is an essential part of the Christian faith. As utterly incomprehensible as all of this is to us. Because, once again, we're not trying to talk about little tiny human-sized things, but things on the level of him who says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we are trying to contemplate God. We're trying to contemplate eternity. We are trying to contemplate a mystery that is infinitely above our pay grade. But that contemplation is not pointless, because the more we focus on the things of God, the more we grow into them, the more they begin to fulfill us and change us. And so I think of this belief in the resurrection of a body as a form of a deep hope and a deep trust in the goodness and life-giving power and relentless love of God. So thank you for being with me for another episode of the History of Christianity. It's great to be with you.